Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we're going to slow our mad dash to get somewhere and celebrate where we are. As you look back over this year, take stock of all you've done, all you've experienced, how you've grown, and where you've added value. So much of our time and energy is invested in setting goals and striving to hit those goals. What do we do when we get there? We make new goals. Very little time is spent on celebrating the win. What happens when we don't reach the goal? We give up most of the time, but sometimes we re-engineer that goal and try again. But very little time, if any, is spent on celebrating what we did accomplish and the growth and learning we received as a result. The quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson might sound cliche. Destination, it's the journey. But it's true. Even though it's more about the climb, the celebration gives you that much-needed intrinsic reward to motivate you as you journey to the next destination. So as you look back over your year, what stands out? Are you able to immediately pinpoint the positive highlights? Or are your wins overshadowed by your losses? Isn't it frustrating the way our brain gives priority to challenges and threats versus positive outcomes? Put a pin in that and we'll come back to it. Were you able to check off things on your to-do list and complete some desired goals? What did you do to celebrate or reward yourself? Who in your inner circle was invited? Did you keep it to yourself or overpost on social media? It's okay, we can be honest here. Let's trace the steps of this year's journey to get a push where we might be stuck and to give kudos where we might have overlooked an accomplished milestone. Let's also find some healthy habits we can adopt to make the climb that much more rewarding. As the title explains, let's start with the celebration. Whitney Johnson helps us kick off the party with Celebrate to Win, found at Harvard Business Review. As adults, we're often much better at work than play. In fact, we seem to turn play into a form of work, one at which we are sadly less competent. Take, for example, office retirement and birthday parties, complete with balloons, pastries, and the requisite crudité platter. It's usually a drop-by between meetings party. Say hi, grab a plate of goodies to eat alone at your desk. Even the guest of honor may only do a flyby. Most of us don't have a good plan to celebrate accomplishments, and the lack of celebration has only become more pronounced and consequential after two years of isolation. This is unfortunate because celebration is an important opportunity to cement the lessons learned on the path to achievement and to strengthen the relationships between people that make future achievement more plausible. When we speak of celebration, we don't mean inebriated partying, but rather commemorative events that encompass complex emotions, including solemnity and poignancy, as well as pleasure and joy in the journey. Every initiative or growth journey we undertake, whether personal or professional, 
can be modeled by an S-curve of learning. At the base of the S, we are on launch point, where we encounter fruitful struggle. Resources and expertise may be in short supply. Growth is slow, sometimes hard to discern, but it's happening. Small, achievable goals and appropriate metrics help us see momentum and experience early victories. As expertise and momentum build, we tip into a sweet spot of competence, a phase of rapidly accelerating progress and productivity. Many projects may come to successful completion during this time. Eventually, however, our growth slows as we approach mastery. The top of the S can be a danger zone of boredom and stagnation. It's time for a new challenge. Eventually, we do have to move on to a new challenge, but it's important to remember that celebration is itself an important milestone on the S-curve, where it's an individual's, a team's, or an entire organization's S-curve. Most organizations don't seem to have a celebration strategy, and individuals also have an on-to-the-next mindset, as though it's a contrary to productivity and efficiency to relish, even briefly. Nothing could be further from the truth. Fortunately, it's easy to integrate celebration into your life and organization. Here are some strategies to start with. Celebrate early and small. Progress is hard won early in a challenge. The launch point on the S-curve. It can be discouraging and require painful perseverance. So why wouldn't we celebrate the early victories, no matter how small? Leading behavioral scientist B.J. Fogg explains the link between emotions and habits. Habit formation is not, as conventional wisdom claims, a matter of 21 days of consistent practice. Celebrating small wins stimulate dopamine release in the brain a feel-good chemical that reinforces the learning experience and strengthens our sense of connection to those we work with. Change and growth are promoted through positive emotions more than through disciplined practice. Keep in mind that celebration is an experience, and in the workplace, it's more effective when shared with colleagues. It's not a certificate, a gift card, or an employee of the month parking spot although those rewards may serve a purpose too. Just as the accomplishments we celebrate don't have to be large, our celebrations don't have to be grandiose. They just need to be meaningful. Cancer patients completing a course of chemotherapy are encouraged to ring the bell while being applauded by individual caregivers. This psychologically powerful acknowledgement, though small, should never be skipped. Celebrate in the interim. The sweet spot of the S-curve is the phase of greatest productivity. As an individual or leader, there are good reasons to want to extend this stretch of the curve for as long as reasonably possible. This can require reconfigured teams, stretch projects, and imposed constraints to keep the challenge level high enough to prolong growth and engagement. These techniques ensure that many smaller mountains will be scaled en route to the ultimate summit. Celebrate all of them. 
we don't just celebrate our first birthday or our last. We celebrate every birthday in between. Whenever an objective is achieved, have a plan to commemorate it, even if the actual objective and commemoration are modest. Make sure individuals recognize their own achievements and know that their managers and teams recognize and appreciate them too. Celebration reinforces lessons learned, practices adopted, and strengthens the foundation and esprit de corps for future accomplishment. Celebrate at the top. This seems obvious, but apparently it isn't. For example, consider the typical retirement celebration. Even for the big ultimate events, we struggle to hit pause on our busyness to try to acknowledge the mountain we conquered. Fred B. Bryant describes celebrating his victory atop Snowmass Mountain in Colorado. In savoring a new model of positive experience, which was co-authored by the late Joseph Veroth, Bryant had attempted to climb twice previously without success. He knew it was unlikely he would ever return. So he lingered with his friends, taking in the spectacular view and committing the sensations of the moment to memory. The smell of the air, the sound of the wind, the details of the scenery. He mentally reviewed the challenges he had overcome to reach this moment. Then he embraced his friends his climbing colleagues, and expressed his gratitude to have shared the climb in the celebratory moment with them. In all, he spent about 10 minutes at the summit basking in the joy and poignancy of the moment of mastery. Your mountain might be landing a dream job, a product launch, closing the deal with a big client, going public, or one of many common but uncommon for you events. The celebration need not be long or elaborate, but it must be meaningful. Celebrate the day. Each day is an S-curve of its own. I encourage you to think of them this way. Take a few moments in the morning before engaging in tasks, even before reading email, to think through your day to come. What is the most important objective to achieve today? This is the mountaintop, the summit of the day's S-curve. Whatever else the day requires, Keep this critical objective the top priority. The morning contemplation is your base camp from which to attack the climb. At the end of the day, celebrate achievement or your progress towards it. BJ Fogg says celebration could be as simple as looking in the mirror and claiming victory. Celebration is an event, not a destination. It's the little pause where we survey the road we've traveled and the mountain we've climbed. We can have a snack with our colleagues or friends rather than alone in our office. We rest, we catch our breath, we contemplate the next opportunity ahead before descending to climb again. But the fact that the interval is brief doesn't make it unimportant or harmless if neglected. Celebrating achievements, great and small, is high-octane fuel for future achievement. We don't celebrate the win, we celebrate to win. I can remember being so hard on myself. I'm pretty goal-driven, and early on, I thought there was only one way to get there. And if that didn't work, then it wasn't meant to be. Throw in the towel and move on. Then I discovered this idea of re-engineering. 
Maybe it wasn't the goal or the process, but maybe the approach. Or the approach was right, but the process was off. Oh, and I discovered a little thing called timing and how that ultimately impacts everything. Isn't it funny that you can't figure out these things when you're in the throes of it? Hindsight, right? But that's why learning from your failed attempts is so very valuable. Imagine if the Roomba stopped when it hit its first wall. Oi, you would have taken that thing back day one. Let's try to remember that learning is a process and it's not always fun in the moment. And a failure shouldn't overshadow all the successes before you hit the snag. Blake Thorne explains why your brain has a negativity bias and how to fix it. Found it, I done this, the science of small wins. Pretend you're a caveman. You're in your cave preparing for your hunt, but something outside seems dangerous. You hear violent sounds you don't understand. You have two choices. Skip the hunt, spend the night hungry, but live another day. Or risk death and go outside. Hold on to that thought. We'll be getting back to it. Now imagine you're driving to work. While getting off the highway, someone cuts you off. You slam on your brakes. You know the feeling that's coming. A tense anger rises up. Your fingers clutch the steering wheel. It's enough to make you feel horrible all day. You might be less productive at work and distracted during meetings. You might try to counterbalance that feeling with a quick shot of endorphins from junk food, mindless web surfing, or time wasting. This only compounds the problem. This is like taking short-term unhappiness and investing it in a long-term, high-yield unhappiness investment plan, ensuring belly flab and career stagnation for years to come. So why does this one minor thing, getting cut off, have such a powerful effect on us? Why does one negative experience ruin our otherwise great day? The answer has to do with our friend, the caveman. Research shows that our brains evolved to react much more strongly to negative experiences than positive ones. It keeps us safe from danger. But in modern days, where physical danger is minimal, it often gets in the way. It's called the negativity bias. It isn't entirely the caveman's fault. The neurological roots of the negativity bias, first identified by psychologists Paul Rosen and Ed Rosiman in 2001, started long before that. In Dr. Rick Hansen's book on this topic, Hardwiring Happiness, the New Brain Science of Contentment, Calm, and Confidence, he writes that humans share ancestors with bats, begonias, and bacteria that go back at least 3.5 billion years. Hansen describes these ancestors as living in a world of carrots and sticks. Carrots are rewards, food, sex, and shelter, and sticks are punishments like predators, disease, and injury. Over hundreds of millions of years, it was a matter of life and death to pay extra attention to sticks, react to them intensely, remember them well, and over time become even more sensitive to them. Carrots and sticks are internal as well as external. 
It was found that bad experiences are almost always stronger than good. And the way we take in that information shapes how we see ourselves. Bad emotions, bad parents, and bad feedback have more impact than good ones. The self is more motivated to avoid bad self-definitions than to pursue good ones. The negativity bias is so powerful, we might do anything to avoid the stick rather than to find a way to pursue the carrot. In other words, the caveman is both scared of the predator and the threat of failing, potentially causing him to hide in a cave and never find a way to successfully hunt. Our focus on negative things is rooted in how our attention works. Arian Mack and Irvin Rock are psychologists who pioneered the concept of inattentional blindness. Before their research, it was natural to assume that your sensory organs, like your eyes, ears, etc., consumed all the information available to them at any given time. These organs pipe that information to your brain, and your brain made decisions based on it. The framing might be positive or negative, but we assume the brain at least had the data it needed to make the informed decision. That's not entirely true. It turns out Mac and Rock revealed that there's a fundamental difference between perception and awareness. In their research, the psychologists asked participants to identify normally identifiable things like faces and names. Mac and Rock found that if they made these things less identifiable, the study participants were less likely to become aware of them. A scrambled face or a misspelled name was harder to even see. A negative bias, then, is really a negative attention bias. When we focus on negative things, we actually reshape our perception into seeing negative things. If someone tells you, just think about the positive side, they're asking for a more difficult task than they realize. The effect of negativity causes you not to perceive the positive aspects of a given event at all. Being negatively biased means consuming negative information at the near exclusion of positive information. Not only does negative stimuli trigger more neural activity, but research shows negativity is detected more quickly and easily. The amygdala, the brain region that regulates emotion and motivation, uses about two-thirds of its neurons to detect bad news. Think about this. Two-thirds of your motivation regulator is designed to focus on negativity. That seems problematic. Also, economic studies have shown people are more likely to make financial and career decisions based on not achieving something good, but on avoiding something bad. Older workplace models have supported this behavior. 20th century assembly line workers were not expected to fail fast or innovate. Being a good employee was following a series of don'ts. Don't show up late. Don't talk back to the boss. Don't touch that button. Most of us aren't working that way anymore. Modern business psychology shows a need to focus on growth and progress, behaviors that inherently need action, not avoidance. Furthermore, values like openness and transparency are celebrated in workplaces more than ever. 
but we're often not taught how to deal with a simple reality. Sometimes transparency hurts our feelings. You might assume the best way to beat one bias is with another, fighting fire with fire. Wouldn't your well-being be better served by feeding it positive feelings and information than negative? It's not that easy. Like it or not, evolution hardwired your negativity bias for a reason. Overemphasizing negative events enabled our ancestors to survive. The caveman might live a more anxious life, hiding in a cave and worrying every sound outside is a predator, but that caveman will live longer than the one that assumes every noise means nothing. The optimist might be right nine times out of a ten, but if they're wrong, they're dead. Of course, in modern times, that one time out of ten isn't nearly as deadly, but that doesn't mean the logic is fundamentally flawed. Negative events have the potential to damage you much more than positive events have the potential to help you. Encouraging a positive bias, however, makes it no less likely that you'll avoid negative events or experience positive emotions. In fact, it might do just the opposite. A positive bias is similar to the more well-known term confirmation bias. When you're biased toward positive confirmation, you're much less likely to notice or take in negative information. You set out each day with an expectation and expect the world to conform to it. If it doesn't, you'll find a way to perceive that it does anyway. Your mood might be higher, but so are the risks you're unknowingly inviting. Think of gamblers. Gamblers are very optimistic. They can empty their wallets pursuing a positive event they're absolutely sure is coming. When they're wrong a dozen times in a row, a positive bias will reframe this to, oh, that means my lucky chance is coming up next. Or think about an average worker putting in average work. A positive bias might convince them they're doing all they need to succeed at work. Without a little skepticism, a little self-doubt, even a little negativity, they may never find they need to work harder or differently. If they come into work every day expecting it to go one way and contort their effort to confirm that expectation, they might miss all sorts of opportunities. Thankfully, there are things we can do to minimize the negative bias. We won't erase it. It took 3.5 billion years to develop, so it's going to stick around for a little while longer. But there are specific steps we can take to fight back. And research even shows we can physically change our brain to minimize the negative bias. So here are a few exercises that can help. Number one, reframe the language behind your goals. Even Pixar Animation Studios has felt the effects of negativity bias. Company leaders began to notice that employees were hesitant to share honest opinions in meetings. People were afraid, afraid of hurting someone else's feelings, afraid of having their own feelings. So leadership introduced a new word, candor. Pixar drives its teams to embrace candor through the Pixar Brain Trust, a small group of well-respected creative leaders in the company's overall film development process. The Brain Trust strives to demonstrate candor by stressing that the film 
not the filmmaker, is under the microscope. By establishing this distinction early and often, creative workers are less likely to take feedback personally. And the word candor in the Pixar's hallways became associated with analyzing projects, not people. It worked. Candor, as Catmull put it, freed Pixar's teams from honesty's baggage. This also helps workers buy into the process early on, ensuring creativity momentum instead of negativity bias quicksand. You can support your reframe language with new benefits. If you're running a sales team, for instance, traditional metrics can encourage short-term tactics and burnout. To encourage healthier, more positive behavior, use metrics that encourage that mind shift. If you want candor or positivity, make it a measurable goal that you can pursue. Number two, be aware of the negativity bias. Hansen suggests being mindful of the negativity bias and recognizing that your brain wants to cling to these events like your life depends on it. It's up to you to decide how dangerous, if at all, these experiences really are. That's the negativity bias of the brain. So be aware when you feel yourself drawn to negativity. Tell yourself you're smarter than your brain thinks you are. Develop a mantra. Try this. I'm not a caveman and this is not a tiger. Repeat it in your head a few times. And now that you know the immense power of negativity, you'll be less likely to invite it into your environment. Number three, keep a gratitude journal. I can hear what you're thinking already. A gratitude journal sounds hokey, cheesy, or silly, but research shows it's much more than that. NPR reports on numerous studies that show practicing gratitude can have all sorts of positive effects. Regularly being thankful and noting the good things in your life can improve sleep, reduce stress, and provide a boost for your relationships. Practicing gratitude is one of the most useful results of research in the field of positive psychology. As cynical as your instincts might be, quantifying the positivity in your life, writing those things down physically, and making it a habit to do so again and again can slowly retrain your mind to focus away from the negativity bias. The more you deliberately think about positive information, the more you can retrain your attention to see that information in real time. Robert Emmons, a professor of psychology at the University of California, Davis, and a leading expert in positive psychology, has offered several tips on keeping a gratitude journal that include focus on people rather than things. Savor surprise events. Write only once or twice per week, but write with depth. Number four, distract yourself. Do you ever notice how working on a challenging problem can make you forget any minor aches and pains? It turns out we may be able to shake off negative emotions by diverting our mental energy elsewhere, like on a puzzle or a memory game. Distractions can refocus your attention from negative events that might be having a disproportionate effect on your ability to process information. 
A reprimand at work, for instance, while bad, might cause you to think of your work in a negative light for weeks. Instead of stewing on that fact, turn to a distraction. If you can separate yourself from the negative event, even momentarily, you can put space between you and its power over you. This space gives you perspective. Distraction is a powerful tool and can even be used to help treat symptoms of PTSD. The key, however, is to not use distractions to escape negativity. Negative events are a natural part of life. Running away from them with mindless distractions will only make things worse. But a healthy approach to distractions can give you the space you need to think clearly and be more productive. Number five. Hansen also suggests taking in the good by spending more time soaking in positive experiences, even small ones. Most of the time, a good experience is pretty mild, and that's fine. But try to stay with it for 20 or 30 seconds in a row, instead of getting distracted by something else. By doing this, you're reinforcing positive patterns in your brain. And your brain learns from experiences, building new neural pathways. Researchers call this neuroplasticity. The key here is to give yourself time to let those thoughts settle in. Don't just push them aside. What you're ultimately seeking to do is reshape your brain to allow in more positive information. This change is physical as well as mental, and those physical changes take time. Repeated and sustained patterns of neural mental activation co-occurring together leave lasting physical changes behind in neural structure and function. The negativity bias is powerful and fighting it will take time, but it's well worth the effort. Practice these things consistently and you'll notice your negativity bias shrinking. You just have to work for it. You know how misery loves company, right? So does negative self-talk. Before you know it, you've spiraled out of control. Time to pump the brakes and start small. Think about a bouquet of positivity. Start your day collecting all the little moments as you would if you were picking wildflowers. Even if it's the smallest size of a tiny violet, pick it up. Think about the accumulation of flowers throughout the day as you build your bouquet. One by one, notice the positive. Seek it out as you would a four-leaf clover. At the end of your day, mentally review your flowers and remind yourself of all the moments you have to celebrate. This is a great way to combat the negative gray washing that challenges try and paint your day with. Counting your blessings is a habit. And you can start today. Well, I want to leave you with Tiny Habits by B.J. Fogg. Let me tell you a little bit about B.J. Fogg. If you don't know about him, he wrote a book called Tiny Habits. He said, I teach good people how behavior works so they can create products and services that benefit everyday people around the world. In 2007, I solved an important puzzle about human behavior. At the time of discovery, I was delighted, but I didn't fully grasp the power and potential of this thing called Fog Behavior Model. That is B equals M-A-P. B is for behavior, M is for motivation, A is for ability, 
and P is for prompt. This solution is deceptively simple. On one hand, you can learn to think about behavior in this way in two minutes. On the other hand, you'll find this model applies to all types of behaviors in all cultures for people at any age. It's universal. With this cornerstone model in place, I was then able to create other models about behavior as well as effective methods of design. BJ is a behavior scientist with deep experience in innovation and teaching. At Stanford University, he directs a research lab and has for over 20 years. He also teaches his models and methods in special Stanford courses each year. So let's take a listen to Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg. I recently read Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg. Fogg has discovered the universal formula for human behavior. B equals MAP. Behavior equals motivation plus ability plus prompt. This formula says that if you're trying to develop a new habit, like reading a book every night before bed, you'll only pick up a book and start reading it tonight if your motivation, your energy to read, matches the ability required to read, the time it takes to hit your daily reading goal, when the prompt to read is present. That is, when you see the book on your nightstand before you go to bed. Author and behavioral scientist BJ Fogg has found a way to hack the universal behavior model so that you and I can consistently perform a desired behavior, like reading before bed, and make huge changes in our lives. The hack is called the Tiny Habits Method, and it involves three parts. Part 1. Shrink the Behavior To understand how motivation and ability interact with one another, Fogg provides the following chart with the action line. The action line says that if a task is too hard, then you need high levels of motivation to rise above the action line and complete the task. Rescuing your child from a burning building is a hard thing to do, but a high motivation to rescue your child puts you above the action line and compels you to run into the fire. Conversely, if a task is easy to do, you need very little motivation to rise above the action line and complete the task. Brushing your teeth is easy to do, so it doesn't matter if you're exhausted just before bed when you're reminded to brush your teeth. You do it anyways. Relying on motivation to be there each time you want to execute a habit is a foolish strategy. That's why BJ Fogg suggests shrinking every new habit to the tiniest possible version so that very little motivation is needed to do it. You can find the tiniest version of your desired habit by either reducing the quantity or doing just the first step. For example, the tiniest version of a 60-minute meditation practice is being mindful of just one breath. The tiniest version of a daily planning routine is writing down one to-do item on an index card and putting it in your pocket. Your goal is to find a behavior that is easy to do in 30 seconds or less. Right now, think of a habit you want to form and then list a few tiny habits you could try out. For example, if you aspire to work out more, the tiniest workout you could perform might be one push-up or one squat or one yoga pose or one jumping jack. Experiment with one or two tiny behaviors and see which one feels like a small win. Different behaviors impact people in different ways. Once you've found the tiniest habit with the biggest impact, it's time for part two of the tiny habit method. Identify an action prompt. There are three types of habit prompts, things that remind you to do your habit. There's external prompts, 
phone notifications or alarms, internal prompts, thoughts and emotions that remind you to act, and action prompts. The completion of one behavior reminds you to start the next behavior. Most people use external prompts or internal prompts to trigger a new habit, and that's why most people fail to develop a new habit. External and internal prompts are too easy to ignore. You can hit snooze on an alarm or ignore a feeling. But more importantly, external and internal prompts are disruptive and demotivating. If an alarm goes off reminding you to take out the garbage while you're watching a movie, you'll probably get angry because you need to pause the movie, get out of your relaxing chair, and put your shoes on to go outside. Contrast that to an action prompt that uses the completion of one behavior to trigger a new behavior. If you use the end of cleaning your kitchen countertops as the prompt to take out the garbage, you can leverage the momentum you already have from being on your feet and walking around the kitchen to then walking outside. That momentum is just enough motivation to get you over the action curve. And since tiny habits can be completed in 30 seconds or less, you'll have many action prompts at your disposal because you can fit tiny habits after almost any routine throughout the day. For example, you can execute a one breath meditation habit after you check your phone or pick up the TV remote or turn off a light or wash your hands after using the bathroom. Here are a few action prompts that BJ Fogg uses. After I start my morning coffee, I will set out my vitamins. After I walk in the door from work, I will get out my gym clothes. After I sit down on the train, I will open my sketchbook. After I put my head on my pillow, I will think of one good thing. Now, go back to your tiny habit and set up an action prompt by completing the sentence, after I blank, I will blank. And finally, part three of the tiny habits method is to grow your habit with some shine. Developing a habit is like growing a small tree. You start with something tiny and you nurture it until it starts to take root in your life and feels natural. Then if you continue to nurture your habit with some shine, that habit will naturally grow into something huge. Your sentence a day habit might grow into a three chapters a day habit. Shine is a term that BJ Fogg created to explain the feeling you get after an accomplishment. The closest thing in the English language is authentic pride. To get an idea of what shine feels like, imagine the following. You've just gone through three rounds of intense interviews for a job you really want at a company you really like. You wait and wait for the email from the hiring manager. And then finally, a week later, you see an email in your inbox from the hiring manager. You open it and read, congratulations, we've awarded you the position. What does your celebration look like and feel like? Or imagine you've worked hard on a school project and your favorite teacher walks up to you and puts his or her hand on your shoulder and says, great job. How do you celebrate in that moment? The feeling you experience after either of these visualizations is the same feeling you must generate after executing a tiny habit. Now, it may sound ridiculous to feel pride and success after just one push-up or flossing just one tooth, but based on BJ Fogg's extensive habit research, learning to celebrate after a tiny win is the most critical component of habit development. Think of yourself as part dog trainer and part dog. Your inner dog performs the habit and your inner dog trainer chooses to give the dog a treat. Most of the time we hold back those treats because we think we should only celebrate huge successes, but that's a huge mistake. Fogg says, 
When you feel successful at something, even if it's tiny, your confidence grows quickly and your motivation increases to do that habit again and perform related behaviors. I call this success momentum. Surprisingly enough, this gets created by the frequency of your successes, not by the size. When you give yourself a steady dose of shine after doing the tiniest version of a habit, your motivation will steadily grow, which will allow you to take on more difficulty while still remaining above the action curve. This is how you grow your habit from one push-up a day to five to 10 to 20. Fogg says, you can resist learning to celebrate, but be aware that you're choosing not to be as good as you could be at creating habits. For most people, the effort of learning to celebrate is a small price to pay for becoming a habit ninja. In the end, use BJ Fogg's tiny habits method to hack your own behavior and get yourself to reliably execute a habit. First, shrink a new habit to the tiniest version, an easy behavior you can complete in 30 seconds or less. And second, use an action prompt to trigger your tiny habit so you start your habit with momentum. And third, always celebrate the completion of a tiny habit. The more you celebrate, the faster you'll be able to grow your habit. It's important to remember the way to sustain a habit is to give yourself the flexibility to always do more, but permission to always go back to the tiniest behavior. BJ Fogg says, while small might not be sexy, it is successful and sustainable. That was the core message that I gathered from Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg. Fogg is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to behavior change. I highly recommend this book. If you would like a one-page PDF summary of insights that I gathered from this book, just click the link below and I'd be happy to email it to you. If you already subscribed to the free Productivity Game email newsletter, this PDF is sitting in your inbox. If you like this video, please share it. And as always, thanks for watching and have yourself a productive week. If you want to share Encouragementology with a friend who needs to know they're not alone in this journey of self-discovery, you can visit Encouragementology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, take stock and identify joy in the process, even when you can't claim a win. Celebrate each milestone along your journey to give yourself the necessary fuel to carry on. I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. Someone through until the path was clear. That's when I found you. How I wound up here.